Hello listeners, Sean here. Uh, before we get to today's episode, I wanted to announce some pretty exciting news that will affect the show and its development going forward. Uh, recently, the show was asked to join the Last of the Action Heroes podcast network. Think of it as a TV station of sorts that airs nothing but other like-minded podcasts, all focusing on the action heroes we all love and enjoy. The Last of the Action Heroes podcast network feed contains multiple shows focusing on Sylvester Stallone and the Rocky series. There are also shows looking at other cinematic action heroes, including Bruce Willis and James Bond. And there are still more on the way. So if you were already subscribed to the show on this particular feed, you can continue to do so as nothing is changing here. However, all future episodes are also going to be put on the Last of the Action Heroes podcast network. So feel free to check that out and subscribe, where you can also check out these other podcasts that also examine the careers of fellow action stars. So with that out of the way, now on to today's conversation. Who is the most underrated actor of all time? It's Dolph Lundgren. Correct. Why? Well, because of his uh, spiky hair and yep. his ice-cold demeanor and his big muscles. Absolutely. I must break you. My name is Sergeant Andrew Scott. Come on, guys, don't do this. If I don't get breakfast, I get real grumpy. I don't think you like me grumpy. And you go in pieces, asshole. Let's kick some ass. Hello and welcome back to I Must Break, this podcast, the fan podcast looking at the cinematic career of action legend Dolph Lundgren. Today is part two of our Expendables discussion, where we're once again chatting the action event of the decade in which Sylvester Stallone wrangled virtually every action star together in a film that delivered everything that fans of 80s and 90s action would want, including explosions, terrible one-liners, bone-crunching action sequences, and did I say explosions? Give this job to my friend. He loves playing in the jungle. Right. A team of legendary warriors on a mission. They weren't expected to survive. If we get out of here, it's a miracle. Let's see what you got. Bring it. You know, it's not easy being your friend. The Expendables, in theaters August 13. I'm your host, Sean Malloy, and with a film as game-changing as the original Expendables was, I felt that two episodes were almost necessary in fully discussing this film. So, closing out part two of this conversation, uh, returning guests Chris Prentice and Matt Poirier are back to chat the film's pre-production as well as its effect on the action genre. So first up will be my buddy Chris Prentice. Chris and I go way back, and the general announcement, hype, and development of The Expendables excited us to no end. Chris and I reminisce on this period from 2008 to 2010, where we geeked out at the very idea 
of this film coming to fruition. After, Matt Poirier from the Direct-to-Video Connoisseur blog and podcast also returns. Considering the content and subject matter of Matt's podcast, I figured he'd be the perfect fit to discuss the effect that The Expendables had on the action genre, particularly the direct-to-video action market. The Expendables was a momentous event in film when it blasted onto the screen in 2010, and it created a sort of ripple effect in the genre, which is fascinating to examine in retrospect 11 years later. Dolph Lundgren in particular has had an interesting trajectory in terms of his films and roles post-Expendables. Thanks to The Expendables, Dolph was back on the big screen and was essentially rediscovered for many. This led him to carving out an impressive niche in the world of direct-to-video, where he starred in almost 40 projects of various capacities over the past 10 years. The end results of each of these projects have been a bit of a mixed bag to say the least, but they're still interesting to discuss on their own. In any case, this podcast here is going to be taking an interesting direction and turn, as we embark upon the next stage and the most recent step in Lundgren's career. Needless to say, things are about to get interesting, folks, so please stay tuned. In any case, uh, first up will be my conversation with Chris Prentice, followed by my chat with Matt Poirier on I Must Break This Podcast. All right, so joining me today is one of my best buddies and show regular, Chris Prentice, and we are here to discuss the hype, pre-production, and just general excitement surrounding the action extravaganza, The Expendables, from 2010. Chris, it's always been a given that you would uh, be, be on for this one, but uh, this is going to be pretty cool uh, to reminisce about uh, this, this period here. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. Th- thanks again for having me on, and yeah, just kind of thinking back to, gosh, now it's been, uh, you know, over 12 years since it was, you know, first announced that they'd be doing this movie and kind of looking back at a lot of the stories that were associated before it started filming. It really kind of took me back. And I mean, there was just so many, you know, wild rumors and so much, uh, you know, excitement and anticipation about this one. It's, it's almost like there really hasn't been a movie like this since, at least for me. I mean, I, I just, I don't get too pumped for a lot of the superhero movies that come out. I know that's what most people seem to get excited for these days, but this, this was kind of the one, this was sort of my, my geeked out anticipated movie moment of, uh, of, of at least this, this current millennium. Oh, easily, easily. Well, and I, there were, there were a couple of ways I thought about going about this episode. I mean, obviously, um, I thought about doing a traditional, you know, review analysis episode, kind of like what, you know, we've been doing in the past for, for the past couple of years. And then I also had the idea, well, maybe I'll do like a, kind of like a, a round table discussion where I invite all sorts of the previous guests on and we kind of do like our own expendables here with the episode. I think the big problem with that, if we did that though, is I think the episode would never end. 
basically. Yeah. <laughs> go on and on and on so yeah i've kind of broken this down uh you're gonna be here we're gonna be discussing obviously the um the the project's announcement uh its overall production leading up to its release and then i thought it'd be kind of cool to kind of look at the film's effect on the uh on the genre particularly the direct-to-video genre but let's just let's just look at the entire conceit of this film because i think that's that's really what the story of this entire film is. I mean, that the, the entire movie, I think we can admit, is a gimmick, okay? I mean, that, that that's all the movie really is. It's a great big gimmick. But can we say it's an amazing gimmick that surprisingly really hadn't been put on screen yet? Basically, Sylvester Stallone came up with the idea of putting together an action movie with the ultimate ensemble cast of action stars from yesteryear. And... I don't even really think he had a story or a plot in mind, you know, after this initial gimmick. I mean, like I said, the plot is the gimmick. And obviously we can look back at films like uh, The Magnificent Seven as attempting something like this. But I think this was, this particular film, The Expendables, I mean, this was the ultimate Magnificent Seven, if you will, but for the new millennium. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I know that I've heard Sly joke, and this is more recently, where he has joked about, you know, saying, oh, well, you know, I got this idea for Expendables when I went to one of those, you know, classic superstars of rock concerts. You know, Mm -hmm. they have all the old bands that get together, and for one night, you've got, you know, five or six of these kind of has been bands and he kind of thought to himself you know i would never pay to see one of these bands by themselves but you put them in one show and yeah i i that, that i would go and I, so I, whether that's actually true or he's just kind of being goofy i don't know but i mean that is kind of the truth i mean mm-hmm. a lot of these guys weren't really able to open a movie on their own so, you know, throwing them together and having them all in this one one big epic showdown, uh, you know, it was kind of a stroke of genius. I think it's the kind of thing that at least, you know, people from uh, from our generation, if you were, you know, kind of grew up in the 80s, you kind of always wondered, you know, why isn't Sly in a movie with Arnold and with Bruce Willis and with Chuck Norris and, you know, from back in those days, you know, why can't they all just do a big movie together? And obviously it's because back then you had all these massive egos and nobody really wanted to let anyone else get over on anybody. And then it turns becomes an issue of money. Who's going to get the most money. But now, you know, in 2008, when this was first announced, you know, that wasn't as big a factor because a lot of these guys weren't getting uh, the kind of exposure they were in the eighties. And so, you know, to have a movie where you throw in so many of these guys together, I mean, it was a, a pretty genius. Yeah, I mean, I think actually, uh, I actually, and for the life of me, I tried finding the interview and I couldn't, I, I could have sworn it was at like a Comic Con um, that uh, back in 2010, that all the guys attended. Um, and I, I could have sworn that it was at this particular event, where Stallone was talking about the the impetus for this idea and how he came up with it. But I mean, he I remember him saying this exactly what you said. Basically, when he was interviewed about this conceit, and how he developed the idea. His idea was that, okay, you have all these action guys from yesterday, okay, and their careers are waning, and they were no longer kings of the box office like they once were. However, when you put them all together, okay, you have lightning in a bottle. And I think, like you said, that's the, that's the, the exact rationale and theory behind those rock supergroups, 
Okay, sure. No one is going to really pay. Well, excuse me, I don't want to say no one, but you know, <laughs> the <laughs> for example, uh, Vince Neil, for example, I yeah. can't imagine that you know he is going to generate the same amount of buzz and the same amount of crowds and audiences that he would have, say, in uh, nineteen eighty eight. However, if you pair him with, say, an Axl Rose and a Bret Michaels, okay, then you have something there, and then you have something that I think. Everyone is going to want to see the, the fans, obviously, from the from the 80s and the early 90s and then maybe the new people. I mean, that right there is is lightning in a bottle. That is a great idea, I think. Oh, for sure. And I think it's also important that it, it really wasn't just all the has beens getting together because he did, you know, having Jason Statham. I mean, he was pretty much the somewhat the action guy who was kind of rising up through the ranks um, at this point, you know, I mean, he had kind of started with transporter earlier in the decade. And so, you know, he was about six or seven years into his run. So I think having a predominantly old school cast, but then bringing in somebody that the contemporary audiences and the younger people have, would have been more into with Jason Statham. I, I think that helped quite a bit because that added some legitimacy that, you know, it's not just old timers day. We are kind of bringing in sort of the, the new wave of, of action stars as well. And so I think Statham rep, uh, sort of, uh, he was the epitome of, of that, angle at that point which i think that was actually pretty key to the the movie's success was was having not only all the old school guys coming together but also having what i would call quote unquote the the young buck with statham exactly exactly well this was announced in the fall of 2008 and was set for a release in 2010 so you and i man <laughs> we yeah. were geeking out about this I, i'll never forget i mean because you and i have been buddies obviously since before this but i remember when they announced this you and i were pretty much on expendables watch if you will constantly going online and looking at the new developments and and everything like that regarding this particular project you know i i think you're kind of like me in the fact that okay I grew up with these action guys, okay? Guys like Dolph, guys like uh, Stallone, Schwarzenegger. I mean, these dudes easily essentially shaped my childhood. So the very conceit of these guys together, I mean, that sold me. I mean, this was, I mean, and this is something that I think you said, you know, a couple years ago, you and I were talking, but these guys were essentially our cinematic superheroes before comic book superheroes were being brought to life on the big screen. I mean, obviously, you know, when I was a kid, we had Michael Keaton's Batman and we had Christopher Reeves, uh, Superman and the Lou Ferrigno's uh, Incredible Hulk. But that was pretty much it. Before, you know, comic books were being brought to life, these were our superheroes, okay? These guys, I mean, if you take a look at guys like Schwarzenegger, Stallone, Dolph Lundgren, these are these rarefied beings with godlike physiques, okay? I mean, these were all you know, uh, individuals who young boys like us who grew up in the 80s and the 90s looked up to. It's kind of an interesting shift how today we have the actual superheroes like Captain America, Iron Man, Thor on screen. But, you know, back in this glorious period, it was these action guys whose, I mean, let's be honest too, Chris, it was these action guys whose name alone could not only sell but open a movie. I mean, th that right there is just amazing. It was just those guys, their name alone, no matter what the project was, it was always the next Schwarzenegger picture, the next Stallone picture, the next Dolph Lundgren movie. And so if you look at it, it's just a, it's just a bizarre uh, climate shift how 
when you go to the early 2000s, suddenly the comic book characters began becoming their their own thing. And it was the franchises that were suddenly muscling out these action guys. Oh, uh, it, it, yeah, no doubt. I mean, I, I kind of liken what's happened with the, the, the traditional action movie uh, from the 80s and 90s. I, I sort of look at what's happened to that today as to what was happening to the western back in the 80s and 90s you know the western was such a big part of motion pictures from you know in the 50s 60s and into the 70s and you know once you know once clint eastwood started to get on the scene with uh with his you know dirty harry films and then you moved on to where it was arnold and sly and then on to van damme and seagal i mean those sort of action movies i think really kind of ushered out the Western and kind of put them out to pasture. And, you know, unfortunately I think it's, it's been the same with the superhero movie. You know, I think pretty much starting with X-Men, I mean, some people would say, you know, there was blade before that, but blade in a way is almost kind of a, a mixture of, you know, you've got a traditional action star with snipes melded with a comic book character. And Blade so I, really I, isn't a comic book movie. I mean, sorry to interrupt yeah, you, but it's, no, you're it's right. really not. And what's funny about it is if you look at Blade, the first Blade movie, that one's more like a, a neo, you know, like a neo-noir horror kind of movie thing. And then if you look at Blade 2, that's where it started leaning into its comic book roots because you had X-Men and Spider-Man preceding it. You know what I mean? So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, really with X-Men was where I, I feel like that's kind of what really ushered in this movement towards the comic book films because, you know, a couple of years after that, you had Spider-Man and it just moved on and on and on. And, and basically slowly over time, maybe not even slowly, it was actually pretty quick that basically the, the, the old school style of martial arts or cop action movies were basically phased out and now everything is about superheroes. So, you know, that was another reason why the Expendables was so exciting was because after so many years of, you know, basically having all these superhero movies kind of rise to prominence, it was like, okay, finally, we're going to get all these guys in one movie. It's going to be old school action. It's going to be, you know, martial arts with Jet Li. You're going to have big shootouts, big explosions, car chases. And, you know, that's, again, like like you, I mean, that's the era that I was raised in. I mean, these guys were larger than life. They were essentially our superheroes. And even though it was very rare, aside from maybe like a Universal Soldier, where it was very rare that these guys were ever in a movie together, I always kind of felt like their movies were in the same universe. Like, I always kind of felt like, you know, Commando was in the same world with, with March for Death, with Rambo 2, with Showdown Little Tokyo. I mean, maybe the locations might have been different, but I always kind of felt like, ah, it's all happening in this same crazy universe where, uh, you know, that's just full of uh, soldiers and martial artists and renegade cops. And so that, in a way, was kind of my my shared uh, cinematic universe, you know, way before uh, Marvel was doing it. Well, and if you take a look at the at the overall concept of the film or the 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 general plot, if you will, I mean, it is extremely simplistic. I mean, I I'm convinced that again, I think Sly was when he came up with this idea, he was kind of going about it the canon way of doing things. Okay, we have the stars attached. We have the idea for a cool poster. 
all right, let's kind of eke out an idea for a story here or there, okay? Because it's basically, it's a soldiers on a mission film, similar in story to something like the uh, the Dirty Dozen, where Stallone is the leader of a group of mercenaries who are hired to take on dangerous jobs that organizations won't. Like I said, it's an extremely simple conceit, which I think is okay considering, let's be honest, Chris, Really, the main story of this film is, can you believe they've gotten all these guys together? Like, I think that, that is yeah. the main story. And to be honest, I don't know how much of a premise for this thing was really even necessary. I mean, as, as, I, as I watched it again, as I look upon it, the film really could have almost been meta with all of these stars essentially just playing themselves and going on an adventure, which in the end basically what this film is yeah yeah i mean based the story it, it, there's really nothing too original about the story the story is very much you know this is a much smaller movie but it's it's almost the same as the, the i don't know if you ever saw the christopher walken film the dogs of war where mm-hmm. he's essentially a mercenary has to get a, a a team together and they have to go overthrow a dictator um and you know, obviously that movie doesn't have the the bombastic streak of the Expendables, but it's it's the same essential plot line. You know, it's a group of mercenaries got to overthrow a dictator. Mayhem ensues, and so I think yeah, that's that's not really the selling point. The selling point is having all these people together. In fact, it's I a mean, gimmick. Yeah, you know? I mean, when when you look, I was looking back at when this the project was first announced in uh, November of 2008 and it was it was announced at the uh, at the American film market which i guess they still have though it's kind of one of those aspects of movies that's on on fumes at the moment where you know new things were announced and basically the the poster they you know they had a little poster that was run from different websites you know kind of trumpeting the project all it is is just the names, you know, Stallone, Statham, Lee, Expendables. I mean, that's basically it. That's all that's on there. It's just a black poster with their names and the name uh, of the movie. And but you know, that was enough to really kind of set the spark. And 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 also, yeah, no, hundred percent. And you know, and, and then also, I think another big reason, you know, why this was anticipated was because you know this announcement was. I guess maybe now nine, this would have been about nine or 10 months after the fourth Rambo film came out. And you know that if you were an action fan, you know, that Rambo film was huge. I mean, that was like, Whoa. I mean, we, he's, we're definitely going into a a different, a different stratosphere of carnage with this fourth Rambo film. And so I think, people had kind of a high from that. At least if you were into action movies, you had a pretty good high from that fourth Rambo. So when you see that, you know, the next film from Stallone is not only going to be him, but also Statham and Jet Li. And then you're thinking of these images of the fourth Rambo film. I mean, it was just, I think it was just kind of a perfect storm. It was just the right time for this kind of project to get going. Well, that's that's an excellent segue there because yeah, when this project was first announced, it was basically just three. It was Stallone, Jet Li, and Jason Statham. Which, look, I love the cast that was assembled for this, but I think if it would have just been those three, I think in the end that that I mean that certainly would have made a lot of sense at the time because if you remember, like you said, Sylvester Stallone had a big career resurgence thanks to the fourth Rambo movie, and Jet Li and Jason Statham they had just come off of the film War, 
Okay. And so it only made sense that, okay, that Stallone here is, is doing this particular film and is aligning himself with, with these two guys, because I mean, (laughs) I was going to get to it in a minute, but Lionsgate picked this film up eventually for distribution. Of course. Um, I don't know about you, but it was never a question to me who else is going to be handling this one. In my mind, Lionsgate was the only company who could properly handle a project like this. Yeah. Totally. I mean, they had done, they, they had put out Rambo, they put out war. They were doing not all of Statham's movies at that time, but a lot of them like crank and, um, and they actually also put out the third transporter Mm -hmm. and they had also, you know, done um, some other, uh, Jet Li films. So yeah, it just seemed like a natural fit that, that that's the company that was, would end up releasing this, uh, this movie when it was, was completed. The condemned. I don't think the condemned gets a lot of uh, a lot of attention, but I think that one's very underrated as well. That's that's another one. Yeah, I mean they had. In fact, that was one of their big one of their big pushes when this movie came out. I'm sure you remember is you know Lionsgate reissued a whole lot of the back catalog movies featuring the guys from the Expendables, and you know they would you know had their at a much reduced price basically saying hey own lockup own johnny yeah. handsome own universal soldier st- with featuring a star from the expendables so yeah it was just it was a total natural that this would be a Lionsgate film but then it was announced if you remember then it was announced that Dolph Lundgren was added. Okay, so you had the initial core three. You had uh, Stallone, Statham, Jet Li, and then it was announced that Dolph Lundgren was added. This excited me to no end, mainly because this was Dolph's big return to the big screen. It was eventually announced that uh, he was going to be playing the character uh, named Gunnar Jensen, which the names of the characters in this film <laughs> we'll yeah. get to in a minute. The names of the characters are hilarious. But uh, but yeah, so for a very brief period, there were the four. It was going to be Stallone, Jet Li, Jason Statham, Dolph Lundgren. And for that brief period, before the other cast got announced, again, that was pretty cool. It was like, okay, this is this this is going to be a pretty cool and exciting project. I don't know where it's going to go story wise, other than you know soldiers on a mission. But this could be pretty cool, or excuse me, this is going to be pretty cool. Yeah, well, you know, kind of looking back at how and at all these kind of stories unfolded, and and at the order of things, what's interesting is that so you had the initial announcement of the the main three. Now the next name that was hyped up that was basically associated with this project for a long time before it basically came out that now it's not going to happen because of uh, scheduling issues was Forrest Whitaker. Right. He was on board. I mean, it seemed like he was on board and this was, you know, coming relatively soon after he had won an Oscar. And I remember thinking at the time, Oh, that'd be pretty sick. I like Forrest Whitaker. I mean, he had actually just been on the shield who he was great on the shield. And um, I, I thought, Oh, okay. I mean, even though he's not, a quote unquote action star. I was like, okay, this, I think this is going to be pretty, pretty cool to have him. And then, yeah, uh, I think it was a couple weeks after that, that the, um, the Dolph Lundgren news came out and, oh yeah, that just sent this from like from a 10 up into uh, you know, a 20 in terms of anticipation. I mean, it just kind of broke the meter because, you know, it was like, if, if you, if you're a fan of this guy, you know, you hadn't seen him on the big screen since Johnny Mnemonic and you know he had been making 
up, up to that point, he had been making some you know really good direct-to-video action movies. And so, yeah, hearing that he was going to be a part of this and he was going to be included with this ensemble, yeah, it totally just amped things up. I mean, it was already a highly anticipated project, and it just put it into a whole other level. Well, and this is also... Uh... I would like to say, you know, th- this is also kind of the the positive and also the negative with the internet. Because look, when when this project was announced, thanks to the internet, I mean, people, fans like like yourself and me, we were, like I said earlier, we were on quote unquote Expendables watch for the oh, better yeah. part of two years. Okay, and so we were constantly, you know, on the internet. There were various some um, uh, set reports and uh, various articles about the project being in production, and so. Well, granted, that is exciting, but the problem with that also is that by the time the movie came out, you've—I felt like, at least with me, I felt like I had seen everything already. I knew all of the characters' names. I pretty much knew all of the characters' arcs that were, you know, that were going to be associated with all of these characters. And you know, while it was fun being given a bird's eye view into the production, I will admit that a little bit of the movie's magic, for me at least was lost by the time I saw it. I mean, for example, one of the big plot points in the film that was announced in the early stages, even before it even started shooting, was that Dolph Lundgren and Jet Li were going to have a fight scene. Why would you spoil that? That was always my biggest complaint. Why would you spoil something like that? And so by the time, again, I saw it on the big screen, I knew it was going to be happening. I knew it was coming. And so... I, I don't know, man. I, I, you and I were talking about this the other day. It's it's stories like this, this kind of movie journalism and behind the scenes that makes me kind of long for and miss the days where all we would get were a poster, a trailer. If we were lucky, maybe a two and a half minute uh, behind the scenes stint on Entertainment Tonight, and that would be it. But this film, man, I mean, I'll be honest right now. I feel like the the anticipation and the hype leading up to the actual movie was almost, for me at least, more exciting than the movie itself. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I definitely get what you're saying. Um, this was a movie that I probably followed the the day to day filming as close as any other movie that I can think of. And part of the reason for that is because there was so much content available. I mean, going back, I mean, there were so many websites that would have their, you know, set visits. You know, we're on the set of The Expendables, and we're going to do five days of coverage, a different interview every day with somebody. And that whole kind of era is over. I mean, there really isn't those kind of set visits. I mean, websites just don't do that. There's just no money in it anymore for that kind of, that kind of content. But back at this point, you know, in, in when this was, you know, first announced in 08 and then eventually filming in 09, I mean, you literally every day you could get photos, you could get interviews and, you know, who's, who's filming this day. Oh, what scene is this? Oh, Mickey Rourke is leaving the set of Iron Man two for a weekend so he can go film his part. <laughs> And and just, so you hear that. I mean, I'm I'm yeah. sorry again. I, I, you hear that, and then you think, okay, well, if he's only leaving for a weekend, that means he's only going to be on screen maybe six minutes. You know what I mean? Like, so it's kind of like there's yeah. no there's no surprise there. Uh, no, it's true. It's true. And then you know, I'll even go. I'll go a little further in that. You know, I had a, a friend who at the time was living in New Orleans and actually did some work on this movie, some behind the scenes work. Um, his name was Casey, and he actually sent me the script 
for this movie. And I've always been one of these people who are like, oh, I don't want to read the script before you know the movie is out. I mean, I hear, I see people online if there's a Batman movie or this movie. Oh, I read the script. It's going to be something. It's like, well, why would you want to read that before you see the movie? But I'll yeah. tell you, when I got that script in the mail, <laughs> I was reading it right away. So yeah, you I was, sent me I a was, copy. I know I was no better. I was I was no better at all. And I basically, hey, you know, that was a, uh, you know, the 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 actual film differed slightly with what was on that script, but uh, you know, so it was just it was just a movie that was tailor made for hype and for excitement. And you know, every new photo that would come out, there would be, oh, here's a new article about this photo. Here's a new article about this. Or, you know, here's a, hey, Gary Daniels is going to be in it. Here's a new story about Gary Daniels being in the movie. It was just, it was just a different time. It, you know, looking back, yeah, was it overkill? Sure. But, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting to think back as to how, you know, movie journalism has changed um, in those 10 or 11 years now, because there's just, there's just none of that. Basically, basically if, if you're a site that's, you know, writing about movies, you just wait for studios to announce stuff. And then you, you write up stories about it. There's no more about the rumors, really. The, the, there's just not a lot of that. There's no more, Oh, my source with this studio tells me this. It just doesn't happen much anymore. It's, it's just, everything is just waiting for whatever the studios are going to give you. And you just report on that. Well, it's funny. Yeah, I remember you uh, you emailed me a copy of that script as well, and I I, I quickly uh, glanced through it as well. And you know, going through all of these rumors and all these various announcements, that's kind of what became again exciting. But for me, it was also a little uh, a little worrisome here. Okay, because it seemed like not a week went by where just more and more actors weren't getting added. Like, it just kept... I mean, this this thing was a steamroller, okay? It was a train that just... More people just kept hopping on board it. And I remember something... Uh, there was an interview with the legendary screenwriter, Stephen E. D'Souza, who wrote classics such as Die Hard and Commando. And I remember he said something really interesting in this interview. He said... Why are there only seven dwarves? Okay, if you look at the story, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, why are there only seven dwarves? And he said the reason for that is because if there are any more than seven, the audience is going to lose track of the various characters and they're going to forget about certain characters. And so I'll never forget reading that particular quote from uh, Mr. D'Souza and then looking at this project and... Yeah, you had the core four, okay? You had the Stallone, Statham, Lee, Lundgren, okay, who were on board. And then suddenly, yeah, you kept getting more people. So if we just look, if we just go down the list of, of people yeah. who were added, Randy Couture right. was suddenly added. And, you know, this was something I was slightly hesitant about due to the fact that, okay, let's be honest, I, I don't want to mitigate his talents uh, in the MMA ring by, or Octagon, excuse me, by any means. But I was thinking, well... Randy Couture is not really an action star. Like, okay. And then suddenly uh, Terry Crews was added. Now, what's interesting about Terry Crews' role is my understanding was that was initially supposed to be 50 Cent, but then... I think due to the internet backlash, oh yeah, <laughs> that, that announcement caused caused Sly and Company to kind of change that one and go with Terry oh, Crews. Oh yeah, look, I mean, I I I went over this stuff ag- again recently, and so basically, basically, Forrest Whitaker was going to be Hail Caesar. I mean, right. that's that's what was going to happen. But, Another great know, name. <laughs> yeah, and and hey, I I would have loved to see Forrest Whitaker with these guys. I think that would have been great. But as things kind of progressed. 
uh, the shooting schedule got a little later, got a little later, and got to the point where Whitaker had to drop out. I had something else he had to make. I don't know. Maybe he was going to film that Repo Men thing he did. I don't know. But he had to drop out. And so, yeah, that's when it was announced that it would be 50 Cent taking over. And and I, I looked – I mean, it's, it's, it's really – it's just nuts how these things happen. So, so yeah, 50 Cent gets announced, and – Basically, it was it was on a, an article in uh, the Ain't It Cool News where Stallone at that point he was kind of feeding a lot of information to that site. Uh, he was he was pretty close with that site, and yeah, there was a huge backlash. People just did not want Fifty Cent in this movie, no. and and Stallone. There's there's um you know you're probably familiar I'm sure with the uh, the Stallone Zone fan site, <laughs> and. He actually wrote basically a message on that site defending 50 Cent, saying that, you know, people, you guys, everyone needs to calm down. You know, you got to give this guy as a talented artist. You got to give him a chance. You, you know that, 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 you know, he, he kind of likened uh, what 50 Cent was going through with his own early career where nobody wanted to give him a shot. And eventually somebody did and, and he got Rocky and that's kind of how he was basically explaining that, you know, 50 Cent is going to deliver. And I swear two days later, 50 Cent out, Terry Crews in. Yep. <laughs> I mean, it, it's, 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 um, I mean, I'm, I'm sure I'm positive that the reason that it was 50 Cent was because he had done a few movies with millennium at right. that point he had done uh, a cop movie with a uh, val kilmer streets of blood and he was also in a uh, righteous kill the 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 pacino de niro movie that we don't talk about it anymore but uh he was he was also in that one and so he kind of had a relationship with them so i think it was basically well we can't get forrest whitaker hey we've got a good relationship with 50 cent let's go get him but yeah the the backlash was quick because it was t- just two days later that he was out and terry cruz was in so that's pretty wild god well and speaking of wild isn't it just amazing how you know the these trolls on the internet have the ability in this day and age. I mean, now it's even it's even more prevalent nowadays. I mean, if you look at uh, what they did to the Sonic the Hedgehog movie, I oh, mean, yeah. My, yeah. my goodness, you know. Yeah. Um, but it's just amazing to me how, you know, thanks to the internet and especially nowadays, thanks to social media, how even when a project is announced and people sign up sign on for it, it has the ability to just immediately get dogged. Right, even before it's out the gate. I mean, and you got you and I have talked about this before, but I mean, look, the the best example I can think of is Superman versus Batman. Now, there are some problems with Superman versus Batman, and I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. But you know, how is a film? How is any film supposed to do well at the box office and get any kind of positive attention when, even before it even starts filming, it is just getting dogged and trashed? by the online community. It, it's really disheartening and really sad, in my opinion. Yeah, it, it's, it is. And that's why, you know, looking back at Expendables, I mean, it, it's pretty shocking how it 100% was the fan backlash. It, and, and, and we're talking about just two days of fan backlash is what yeah. it took to get 50 Cent. And look, personally, I think Terry Crews is, be- is a better choice for the role. So it, I... It, it, I think it probably was the right move, but yeah, at the same time, it is very weird that 
such a big online backlash could have led to a major actor not being, uh, or at least an actor, maybe not a major actor, but an actor not appearing in, in a major film. It's, it's pretty wild. But, you know, these things have kind of gone on. I mean, obviously, it's, a, it's much bigger now because of the internet. But, you know, there was back in when Michael Keaton was announced to be Batman, people were nuts. They, 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 they could not envision that. It was, you know, how in the hell is this guy who was Beetlejuice supposed to be batman and you know that that we all know that turned out pretty well so it, it's it's gone on for a long time and i mean i remember people flipping out when uh when daniel craig was announced as uh, james bond it was because he had the, at that point he had much blonder hair and people were were just you know incredulous that how are you going to have this guy with blonde hair playing james bond and it, you know there was a whole big fear about that and you know that's for the most part turned out pretty well at least in terms of leading to successful james bond movies so you know the internet's always going to be full of stuff like that and but yeah when it comes to the this this incident with the 50 cent i i really had kind of forgotten about that but you know reading some of this stuff now it's just pretty wild how quick he was just gone from this whole production well, you know, with, with regard to Terry Crews, I will admit when I heard that initial casting, I thought to myself, well, you know, he looks the part. I mean, he at least looks the part to where you know that he can hold court with all these guys. However, I also, in the back of my mind, was thinking to myself, okay, the most I've seen him in was like that Everybody Hates Chris show and uh, White Chicks and whatnot. So when I heard of his casting, I remember thinking to myself, okay, there's going to be some tongue-in-cheek stuff in this movie. That, that's the only way it seems like Terry Crews has played his various roles. So I knew going in that he was going to be the comic relief of this film. Yeah, I mean, the, I think the, the main part that I had uh, known him for before this was as uh, the president in Idiocracy, where he's uh, again, hilarious. Yeah, another, yeah, another comical role. But I thought that, you know, I mean, he's a, a larger-than-life personality, and I think, honestly, at the time, I was just relieved it wasn't going to be 50 Cent, to be honest. Yeah. And so I was just like, hey, this Terry Crews, way better. And, you know, I, I know I'd seen him in some other things, too. Like, he was in that uh, Christian Bale movie, Harsh Times. Um, he had, you know, he had a pretty decent role in there and, um, you know, so I, he, he was definitely kind of on the rise at that point. It's funny. I, I look back at one of the articles that was, you know, talking about him being cast in the expendables and it was basically saying, oh, well, uh, Terry Crews is, is looking to make a move in the, the action genre. He'll also be seen, uh, in a couple months in Terminator Salvation. And I don't, I don't know if you remember, but there isn't a whole lot of Terry Crews to be seen in Terminator Salvation. No, it's, no. Uh, uh, so I don't know. I think uh, that way. Thinking back now, that that was pretty funny. But personally, I think he he he's one of the best parts of the movie. To be honest, I think he's outstanding. So I mean, I I, I think maybe there was a a poor choice made with his character in one of the later movies. But in terms of the first one, I thought he was he fit perfect. I thought he was great. Well, and then some of the other casting announcements. Uh, Mickey Rourke uh, was also added um, as a character by the name of Tool. Uh, Rumor has it that uh, as a favor to Sly, um, who had gone out on a limb and helped Mickey Rourke uh, by insisting on Mickey Rourke's casting in the film Get Carter from 2000. From Yeah, that was fall of 2000 that was released. So that's kind of why it was kind of like a a mutual arrangement where Mickey Rourke was like, hey, you scratched my back when, when I really needed it. I'm going to, I'm going to help you out here. 
And then we also got, let's see, uh, Eric Roberts as the main heavy alongside Steve Austin. And then in a very interesting uh, bit of casting here, um, Brittany Murphy was yeah. briefly attached as Mickey Rourke's girlfriend. And so this, for me, again, going back to what uh, uh, Mr. Steven D'Souza said about the Seven Dwarves, I was thinking to myself, okay, if they're casting someone by the name of uh, someone along with the likes of uh, Brittany Murphy, the, the late Brittany Murphy, who was, you know, who was a recognizable name. Yeah. I'm thinking to myself, are there too many characters here in this, in this entire mix? And I almost kind of wondered, would this be better as like a mini series or something like that? I mean, if they're casting a name like Brittany Murphy to play the girlfriend to Mickey Rourke's character, who ostensibly is on screen for maybe less than seven minutes. Okay. It it was kind of like, okay, like, are they biting off more than they can shoot you here? Well, but at at that point, we didn't know really that Rourke was only going to be in it. Those few scenes. I mean, we, we, we really didn't have any idea. I mean that him, him, you know, if, if we think about it now, we think well, big deal, Mickey Rourke. I mean, God, why, what what difference would it make? But you know, at when he was announced, this was right in the middle of when the wrestler was getting all the accolades. That mm-hmm. you know, this was right at that time when there was the the awards push for for Rourke for for the wrestler. And so, I mean, this was a big upswing for him. And so, yeah, him being announced as being part of this. Um, Expendables was was big at that point, yeah. and yeah, I, I definitely remember the the Brittany Murphy news, and you know that just seemed kind of odd, but yeah, obviously you know when you think back, it's like yeah, was it was it a little too much? I, I really don't think so. I think this movie needed to have kind of too much. You know, it, it obviously got absolutely crazy once they finally got to the third film but it, uh, for this one i think they kind of needed to have a lot of just personalities in there to kind of just wet everyone's appetite i mean i don't know if you remember but before it was eric roberts i mean do you remember who was going to be playing the the main villain before him oh boy i'm gonna have to go back now who was it uh, it was ben kingsley that's right that's yeah. right that could have been interesting obviously he wouldn't, have got, he wouldn't have had to he wouldn't have been able to throw down with those guys but he's proven that he could be a very cold calculating uh menacing oh, yeah. villain yeah so. no, i would have i mean if you could have had him in like the that sexy beast kind of mode as the villain i mean i mean i liked eric roberts well enough i mean he was and, and he was also in a somewhat better place coming right off of the dark knight when he was cast in this um but yeah, I think Kingsley would have been a blast. I mean, I think that that's that was an and then before Steve Austin, I I found a uh, you know kind of again going through this stuff before Steve Austin was cast as essentially the number two bad guy, it was the Expendables two number two bad guy Scott Adkins, right. who I saw was rumored to be playing uh, Pain in in this film. So you know, I mean, he eventually I guess got to do it in the next one, but I thought that was kind of interesting. That was something I hadn't really seen before, uh, or at least not since you know ten or eleven years ago when this was all going on. Um, but yeah, then eventually they went with Steve Austin, which you know that was another kind of like Couture was a somewhat puzzling 
casting to me at the at that time. But I mean, at least Austin had had a couple movies under his belt right. by then, and so you know, it was like, okay, that's fine. You know, we'll you know, throw him in there. It wasn't wasn't quite as much of a, a puzzler as Couture, but I don't know. I think it, I, I, I was mainly just looking for a lot more in terms of the older action guys uh, in, in these parts. And even though, you know, Stone Cold had done the condemned, I didn't really quite have him in, in that league at that moment. Well, and then, okay, <laughs> another excellent segue there, Chris, because then at the near, it felt like it was near the tail end of the pre-production. We also got wind that Arnold Schwarzenegger and Bruce Willis were going to be getting cameos in this film as well. So that right there, those two additions, even though we knew that they were going to be small bit roles, that amped up the the excitement and piqued i think a lot of people's interest because arnold was uh, arnold for one i mean he was still governor around that period yeah. so yeah yeah that's um yeah well when arnold was announced you know i'm, I'm looking kind of I've, at, at this at this timeline so he was announced you know, way before willis because they filmed they filmed the scene with those three guys kind of, that was a well after everything else was shot and so, you know, Arnold was announced. And at, at this point, you know, this was early 2009. This was right in the middle of, you know, kind of the financial crisis that the country was going through. And it hit California very hard. And, you know, Arnold was governor. And there was there was a lot of flack that he was catching when this was announced. And it was basically like, oh, you know, this, you know, this state is going through such a financial collapse. And now you're going to go film a movie. And so, I mean, he was getting I mean, this was towards the end of his second term. So it wasn't really going to be something that would impact any kind of reelection because he just wasn't going to be able to run again. Um, so. But it was just kind of interesting seeing that that sort of angle that you know Arnold was was kind of catching a lot of flack for being a part of this, um, and then yeah, it, basically it was about six months after Arnold that that was when Willis was announced um, to to be the the church character, and so yeah, all of that was filmed you know I think well after the the bulk of the movie had wrapped. But yeah, that was again those were announcements that were that were huge, and even though you know we we knew that it was just going to be a cameo. It was just, Oh my gosh, we're going to see Arnold and Sly together on the big screen, even for just one scene. I mean, this is going to be pretty, pretty epic. And then, you know, throwing Willis in there with them. And it's, you know, basically, you know, planet Hollywood all over again. Well, and okay. So the, the, the movie is filming. And obviously, uh, like I said, we, we had kind of a bird's eye uh, view into this thing. It's slated for a summer, uh, 2010 release, which is wild to think that that was well over 10 years ago, actually. But yeah, I know. Uh, we have to talk about the trailer, okay? Oh, yes. uh, that hit. Um, the trailer that hit. Man, this is a cool trailer. This is how you cut a trailer. Now, I had never heard of the band Shine Down, but yeah. that song Diamond Eyes just. I mean, it is so appropriate for the movie and its overall conceit. So I don't know who cut this trailer and who decided on that particular um, that, that particular track to accompany the trailer, uh, but that was amazing. I will say, though, while I love the song that accompanies this trailer, I will say, in my opinion, I think it was a bad move, them spoiling the Schwarzenegger and Willis cameo in, in the trailer. I think this film would have done just fine 
okay, on its own without that secret yeah. being spoiled. And in my opinion, I felt them spoiling that because that's the only scene they're in, okay, in the film. Right. And then for right. them to spoil that in the trailer, that was a bit of a, a letdown for me. But I guess I'll, I'll go to you real quick. What, what did you uh, What did you think of the trailer when it hit? Oh, I loved the trailer. I mean, I loved it. Was it basically it delivered? I everything that I wanted, you know, obviously I think the one complaint I had being a huge Lundgren fan is no I wish there, had been, there wasn't much, you know, aside from when he gets, you know, his name flashed on the screen, there really wasn't much of him. Um, but aside from that, I mean, I thought it was awesome. I mean, it was basically, wow. I mean, this is the, all this, all these photos I've been seeing and all these stories I've been reading. It's like, this is it. This is, this is actually happening. Here is the first footage. And so I was blown away and I, I actually disagree about the having Arnold and Willis show up in there because look, there just aren't, there just aren't really big secrets anymore. I mean, it's just, it just doesn't happen. I mean, I remember, right. you know, I guess it was what, two years before this movie came out um, when, you know, Iron Man came out and Iron Man was a huge giant hit. It's you know going to be the first of these, you know, Marvel cinematic universe movies gigantic everyone loves robert downey jr well the next movie that was going to come out was the ed norton hulk movie a couple like a bit maybe like just about a month later in which you know robert downey jr has a cameo um towards the end of it and basically there was a, a an entire commercial that basically just showed hit robert downey jr in the movie and showing him talking to william hurt basically telling you look you know Iron Man is in this movie, even though it's only for a minute. He's in this movie, so I just kind of feel like that there just aren't the big surprises anymore that there used to be. But it didn't really impact my enjoyment. It, it actually made me more excited. It was like, oh my goodness, here we've got these three that are going to be sharing the screen together. Yeah, would it have been you know cooler to have seen it first when the actual movie opened? You know, probably, but having it in the trailer only only made me more excited for the movie okay now chris i have to ask then okay uh i'm assuming you probably watched this trailer a few times like i did oh, yes. as well did you go on itunes and quickly buy the song diamond eyes like i did no no i didn't no? do that <laughs> no i didn't do that i just uh I, I, you know, but it was just, a, it was just a constant, uh, oh, you know, let, let, let me watch that trailer again. You know, let me yeah. watch that trailer again. And, and this was, you know, before having an iPhone and being able to just watch these things on your phone. So, you know, it was basically, you know, at my desktop, basically, okay, hmm, I got, you know, a minute and a half to kill. Well, I'm going to watch the Expendables <laughs> trailer again. And so, you know, there was a lot of that. And, um, yeah, it's, it's a really well cut trailer. And, uh, you know, the, the, the gags that are in there, I think work pretty well. Um, it's, it, yeah, it, it, what more could you have wanted out of that trailer? I, I really, other than, other than more Dolph, that, that was the one thing that there, there should have definitely been more of that. Um, but aside from, from a little bit of a lack of, of him, the, I thought the trailer was excellent. Okay, so August 2010 rolls around. I'm assuming you were there opening night, as was I, with without without giving too much away or spoiling any of the uh, moments in the plot or anything like that. Just your general reactions, I guess. Did it live up to your expectations, and what did you think? It, it totally did. I mean, I, it was this was a one that I remembered seeing 
you know, now it, it's, well, nothing's open now, but back when movies were, were being shown in a regular fashion. Remember uh, those days? Know, oh, my oh, goodness. Oh, yeah, that was just a year but pretty ago. Pretty soon we'll be telling our children, back back in the day, oh. we, we would watch movies on giant screens, and we'd go and we'd park our car. You know? Oh, <laughs> it was, oh, my goodness, yes. I mean, we're going to, that, that's, that's about where we're headed, it feels like. But um, th- there were showings at midnight on you know the thursday night at midnight now everything that opens there's like eight o'clock showings essentially so you can see it at eight o'clock ten o'clock the night before but for this one you know it was a midnight showing and yeah i mean i for sure i was at that showing and it was it was packed i mean it was you know a lot of times some of these midnight showings i've been to they're they're not all that packed but this one was uh was was completely filled and it totally delivered it was great i mean the audience was into it uh it was just fun it was just a fun summer action movie uh yeah look are there flaws with it of course you know there's definitely things that could have been better uh but man I, i i think at its core this was a movie that delivered i mean this was you know, would it, would this have been better seeing all these guys when they were in their prime back in the nineties? Yeah, it would have, but that didn't happen. So we, we make do with what they did and all things considered, it was, it was an absolute blast. Well, to anyone who didn't understand the hype that uh, was circulating around this film. I mean, I remember I, uh, <laughs> I, I met my wife when this film was in production. And so I was constantly, or excuse me, I met my, before it was my wife. And so uh, pretty much she had to hear about um, the e- e- Expendables watch, I guess, uh, for uh, about a year or so. But, you know, to anyone who didn't understand the hype or who just went to see this movie on a Friday night like they would any other movie, this film really was a love letter to not just action movies from back in the day, but also to uh, action fans from the eighties and the nineties. And this has been a ton of fun, Chris. I mean, you, you and I go way back, but um, I, I had a ton of fun just throughout this period, you know, from 2008 to 2010, really building up the hype with you because n- none of my friends or anyone really at my work. I remember it was interesting because the, you know, a lot of my colleagues and stuff, I was talking to them about it. Like, have you heard about the expendables? And they were like, well, no. And I'm like, oh, check this out. It has this person and this person. And they were just kind of looking at me like, okay. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so it was, it was cool that I was able to, you know, kind of share this with you. And uh, we were, uh, you know, it, 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 that was a really fun period. And I, again, I had a ton of fun going back and watching this movie again and just kind of uh, reminiscing about um, that period, that two-year period of uh, building up the hype. And it's wild to think, you know, here we are now, 10 years later. I mean, my God, yeah. a decade has passed. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, hey, it, it, it was a fun period. And uh, here's, to another, here's to another decade uh, chatting these movies with you. Oh, absolutely. No, this was, this was a blast. I, I really enjoyed, you know, going down memory lane and kind of, thinking back to how exciting this whole process was and all the different names that had been associated and, and all the different stories. And, you know, it was, it was just, it's a, it was a different era. 
you know, it was kind of like Twitter was around, but it wasn't the the big focal point that it is now. So it was just the way the the news was disseminated was so different, and uh, you know, we'll, we'll never really I, I feel have that kind of coverage again. Um, everything is just very different now. But yeah, this was this was a lot of fun reminiscing about this the whole hype that that led up to the Expendables. Yeah, it, it was certainly a lot of fun and. Uh, Till next time, uh, I really do appreciate it. But uh, you, you take care, and uh, I'll uh, we'll we'll talk again soon. Okay, uh, looking forward to it. Thanks for having me on. Nice bird. First of all, I don't feel comfortable talking business with a giant carrying a shotgun. Pretty boy wouldn't give it up. Not if you want to know where they are. What do you know? I just bit one of them. Why are you turning on Lover's Quarrel? We settle on 50. No math whiz. We settle on 100 grand up front in my pocket. Guy thinks he's a real badass. This case is a bloody joke. Life's a joke. Shit, man! If you don't want that Fu Manchu knocked back into the 60s, you better keep your gum chewing trap shut and show some respect! Bring it. Hey! Be nice. Need a facelift, pretty boy? All right, so coming back to the show once again uh, for his sophomore round, I guess we'll say, is uh, Matt Poirier from the Direct-to-Video Connoisseur blog and podcast. Matt, thank you so much for coming back, man. Thank you, Sean. It's always great. Uh, great, great to have uh, – thanks for having me, I should say. Thank you. Well, this one, I mean, I, I should probably I should probably back up and I should probably let you know the, the impetus for uh, why I wanted to do this and everything. You know, the Expendables, I mean, let's just say it's hard to believe, but uh, this summer it will be 11 years ago that uh, uh, the first Expendables movie came out, which is really wild to think. But, um, you know, that particular movie was such an amazing moment. I mean, to anyone who's listening to this, who is not a fan of, uh, of, you know, the, the classic, uh, eighties and nineties action movies, like out for justice and, uh, Showdown a little Tokyo lethal weapon for crying out loud. I mean, the, the entire idea and concept and gimmick of the expendables, you know, all these action guys coming together for one movie. That was just such a momentous, idea event whatever you want to call it and for with this particular podcast i mean i wanted to do something pretty special um looking at the film and so this is part two obviously but uh part one um i did the uh, roundtable discussion um with the boys over at the sylvester stallone fan podcast network where we just looked at the film it was just our general reaction but then i wanted to take a couple segments Looking at the film, uh, first of all, it's it's hype and it's pre-production, as well as the uh, the aftermath of the film. Okay, its effect on the action genre, especially the direct-to-video market. And I figured, you know, last time I had Jan Matt, which was hard to believe, it's uh, been over a, almost a year, I want to say. But I figured you would be the perfect one to uh, to have this conversation with. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate it. And yeah, I think you know, I think. Thinking about like that t- that time, you know, eleven years ago, when when we were, you know, like, oh, this Expendables movie is actually it's actually happening, right? It's not just a a, a concept or, or a dream; it's actually happening. Um, yeah, kind of the way the, the ripple effects that it had after the, the you know, on on the, the, the DTV uh, um, market, I think is a, it's definitely a, a conversation worth having for sure. Oh, definitely, definitely. And before we before we get into it and start having that conversation, I have to ask. Okay, so the Expendables, 
was released in August of 2010. Uh, you know, I have to ask you, I mean, being the, the huge fan of direct-to-video cinema that you are, especially the action genre, I mean, let's face it, were you as stoked as I was for, you know, for, for the release of this particular film? Can you remember when you saw it and uh, what were your reactions then? Yeah, so I didn't see it in the theater. I, I, at that time, I, I don't. At that, I think at that time, the last movie I'd seen in the theater was uh, Evil Ted Two. It was just like showing it like some local thing, and I just was never going to the movie theater enough at that time. Um, so I did see it after the fact. So I actually, or maybe I did see it in the theater. Oh, I can't remember. I, I don't think I did though. I think it was something that I got on Netflix, like the moment it came out on DVD. It was like you know one of those deals where I had to wait for for my uh, turn to get it. Uh, but it was one of those ones where it was like. I think there was a sense of like, it can't be as good as I think it's going to be. If you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. it, we, we, I think in the two thousands, I think we've talked about this before, like, especially like Dolph's movies in the two thousands, but I think direct to video in the two thousands was not a, a great, it wasn't, you know, um, there, there wasn't a lot of great stuff out there at that time. And there were some, you could pick a few here or there, but this, the idea that a movie could be as good as something from the eighties and nineties it just felt like there's no way they're going to deliver that. There's no way they're going to give us that. And, and, and the fact that it happened, you know, I, I, it was even the, the fact that it exceeded my expectations was, it, I think was what was most amazing to me. Well, I mean, you know, and I've, I've said this before, so I'm going to uh, slightly repeat myself, but you know, the expendables was a really, it, it was a true turning point in the action genre. And, you know, it's interesting because going, doing this particular podcast, we're looking at the, at the career of Dolph Lundgren and we are looking at uh, his trajectory and the, um, the decisions that he was making over his entire career for that matter. Okay. With each one of those films and going through and looking at it now in retrospect, I can look at it and I can say, oh, well, this was going on in the genre at this point and and this was going on here. So that might have affected his decisions and influenced his decisions as to why he may have taken on this role and that role, whatever it may be. But if you go back, it's it's and I really noticed this on my most recent viewing, which is fascinating. That's why I've been looking forward to having this conversation with you. But yeah, The Expendables, it really was a real turning point in the action genre in that on one hand... It truly was a love letter to the action films of the 80s and the 90s, okay? The ones that uh, that you and I grew up on and the ones that we loved. However, in a lot of ways, and I really noticed this now, but it was also a swan song to the genre as well as an end. And I don't know if you've noticed this as well or not, but um, it, it's really going to be interesting talking, to, talking about this with you, looking at the effect of this film and the type of films that followed because what's interesting is watching it i mean it's amazing i mean the money is on the screen we'll just say that the explosions galore i mean it is everything that i think a fan of these type of movies would have wanted however having said that you really can't pick out too many films that have followed that particular style since it it almost feels like the genre took a bit of a nosedive after this film yeah, I think you can say that for sure. I think, you know, I think one of the things that coincides with this film, actually, that, you know, at the time, I don't think we we we, we considered it as something that was a, a, a trend that was going to happen in movies. But you've got the Marvel Cinematic Universe kicking off mm-hmm. and like in 09, right? It was 09 Iron Man. Um, so That's it was like right around the same yeah. 2008, yeah. So it's like, yeah. and I, nobody really knew that that was going to be the phenomenon that it was. That it's it's sort of essentially it, it changed the whole movie theater industry in in a sense. That mm-hmm. it was like 
everything's got to be this big as a Marvel movie. And so suddenly, like, you see The Fast and the Furious, which was a genre that started as essentially a remake of Point Break, right? The, the very first film to now these movies where, you know, The Rock is like hanging off of like a, 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 a rig or some kind of big truck that's hanging off of a helicopter that, you know, like they going off of a cliff somewhere or something because of the Marvel effect, right? That everything has to be Marvel movies. And I think, you know, The Expendables is just a straight ahead actioner. I mean, even when you look at the, the, the Die Hard sequels that came out post this, you know, it's, I mean, some of them were, I mean, some of the effects were really cool. I mean, I like seeing um, John McClane when he, he took a, a police car and shot it off a ramp and hit a, uh, um, a helicopter with it. I mean, I like some of those things, but it, it's almost like, the expendable, like you said, it, it almost is kind of a swan song too, because you look at it and you, it's almost like maybe, maybe Stallone and them could see what was happening. Like that, you know, this, this kind of movie, this, this, this Marvel movie, this huge blockbuster kind of thing. I mean, Avatar is another one. I think that's come kind of around this time as well. And, and, and there's a sense that like, you can't, you can't just make a Stallone movie anymore. You can't just make a Dolph movie or anybody like that. Um, I think there was a sense that they were going to have to do something different. And so I think you're, I think the swan song, um, you know, the fact that it was, it, it was it felt like something like a, like a, a love, like a, you said, like a love letter, but also a swan song. I think we didn't quite realize it at the time. I think we thought this was like bringing it back. I think that we thought that Expendables was bringing back what we loved. And suddenly the, the straight ahead eighties, it was, it's almost like, as if like, as if, uh, you know, somebody had said, okay, hair metal's back. Right. You know, mm-hmm. like, and, and, and suddenly like, you know, there's, there's, we're, we're going to start listening to poison and all these groups again. And, you know, Def Leppard and them, they're going to put out new albums and they're going to be on the top of the charts and everything. And it's really like, no, it was, it was more just a reunion tour. Um, and, yeah. and we got it for a short period. That, that, that's a, that's a wonderful way of putting it. Yeah. I mean, and obviously, okay, granted, a couple sequels to the Expendables did follow. We had Expendables 2, which came out. I mean, th- what's interesting is they all came out about two years apart. You had Expendables 2, which came out in August of 2012, and then Expendables 3, which was August of 2014. So granted, we did have some sequels that followed, but let's be honest too here, Matt. These films would not have gone theatrical had it not been for the ensemble cast that was assembled. And I've, I've said it before, and I'll say it again, but the main, if you look at, if you look at Expendables, the main story of the film. I mean, obviously it's a men on a mission movie who are going to an Island to liberate the Island. Okay. But in the end, the story that, that, that is at the crux of this film is, Hey, all these action guys are together in one movie. And you know, to me, okay, look, I grew up with these guys. So to me, that was such an amazing concept and gimmick that I couldn't have cared less what the story was. I just wanted to see Dolph Lundgren back on the big screen, sharing screen time with Jet Li, Jason Statham, uh, Sylvester Stallone. That That's what got me to the theaters. But if you look at it now, again, in retrospect, 10 years later, it's fascinating because in a lot of ways, The Expendables was the beginning of the end for these action guys. And their careers, what was left to them, were essentially limited within the world of direct-to-video. Now, you look at a guy like, say, for example, uh, uh, Dolph Lundgren. Okay, he had already been in the direct-to-video world, obviously. I mean, you're looking at previous episodes of this show. So this, if anything, gave him a bit of a, a bit of a boost again. It gave it put him back on the big screen. But if you look at all of these guys, and I, I kind of I kind of handpicked for our conversation, looking at each one of the action guys in this movie, and kind of looking at their career path post Expendables, but I think in the end, if you look at it, 
yeah, they had the Expendables, and yeah, Stallone has had a couple a couple hits since then. But in the end, like I said, it's all been. And I should probably back up. I, maybe it, maybe it's unfair to say that it took a downward turn. But if you look at all of these guys since the Expendables, I would say with a with a couple, like a, a very few couple films, but for the most part, none of them have uh, matched the uh, the excitement and just the the awesomeness that that this film had. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, um, Mitch Lovell is the uh, the video vacuum. Um, he was on. We were talking about. Uh, the the, uh, the Dolph film Altitude, and um, he kind of talks. He, well, he, he terms it a Dolphisance instead of a Renaissance. A Dolphisance kind of post this film, and it does feel like out of all of them, Dolph was the one who sort of carved out a niche after and doing. You know, it, it, he wasn't a lead guy in big screen films, but he did get parts. I mean, he got a part in Aquaman. I mean, you know, he made the Creed film with uh, Creed Two with with uh, Stallone, which I think. You know, for me, I, I feel like Dolph's role in that was huge. I think you know he 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 really brought something to that part, and I think out of everybody, I think he was the one who who because he was DTV before. I think the fact that he was getting any kind of Hollywood uh, uh, attention after he was good with it. Whereas like Stallone, I think Stallone looked at the Expendables as this is my vehicle to get me back in the leading roles, and mm-hmm. that never happened for him. And I think part of the reason why it didn't happen for him is if if you watch the movies, it's like. Dolph steals the, the 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 show in the first one, so then he gives Dolph kind of a smaller, kind of goofier, wackier part in the second film, where he's just kind of right. driving around with his big guns and his big trucks and shooting things and like yelling. So you know he he gives him a kind of a sl- smaller role, but then Van Damme comes in and steals it. Right now Van Damme's like you know completely stealing the show, and I think same thing as as, as Dolph. I think Van Damme, even though Van Damme had had the big screen success that Dolph never quite had, I think Van Damme was also okay with it after that he was kind of doing his own parts and he was. You know, he he didn't need the big screen fare necessarily either that Stallone, I think, was searching for. And then I think in part three, I mean, you know, I hate, you know, I hate to say because, you know, Mel Gibson, you know, because I'm not a fan of Mel Gibson, after, you know, especially and I, I don't really cover his stuff. But he kind of also, you know, Stallone, Stallone's mindset with the third one was, OK, all of these guys are stealing the show from me. So I'm going to mothball them for the entire film and bring in like Kellen Lutz and Ronda Rousey. And there's no <laughs> way. And, and, you know, Mel Gibson was saying all this anti-Semitic stuff. There's no way he's going to steal the movie for me. Well, Mel Gibson kind of does, which I think is, is kind of, a you know, I know for me, I'm not like I said, I'm not a fan of Mel Gibson, but. I think at the very least, it also it didn't do for Stallone what what Stallone was hoping these would do for him because you know he had everybody in them and then I think everybody looked at it as like this is my shot you know this is yeah. you know Gary Daniels is like this is my shot to show who I am Jason Statham's like yeah I'm starting to get less you know roles Let, I want to show what I can do you know Scott Adkins in the second one showing what he can do and so I think you're right I think because everybody was in there and everybody was trying to get their piece of the spotlight for this small thing. It's almost like um, another analogy uh, as a group new edition when they toured in the nineties after, <laughs> you know, in the late nineties, it's like, okay, Bobby Brown has been a solo act for all this time. Johnny Gill's been a solo act for all this time. Belle Biv DeVoe's been their own thing. You know, Ralph Tresvant, suddenly they're, they're, they're having to share the stage together and they're like, I, I don't want to do this, you know, or, or, or like you could also say like, you know, Sammy Hagar and uh, David Lee Roth when they were touring together and they would have to take turns headlining, right? Because neither of them wanted to be, let the other one be the headliner. I think that's what you saw with this movie, with these movies, yeah. is that everybody was, they were so larger than life that to fit them all on the screen together at once, you know, it, it diminished people like, like, you know, Stallone, he, he, he didn't show up, you know, he, he, he didn't come off as well as some of the other ones, I think. Well, yeah, I, I agree with you completely. And if it's okay, I mean, because I feel like, I mean, you said it already, and so I'll, I'll yeah. echo it. I think Dolph 
post Expendables has had the most fascinating career turn, if you will. So I, I, I'd like to save him for the end because, like I said, sure. I think he's had the, the most fascinating. But if we look at Sylvester Stallone, okay, he was the ringleader to this entire concept, to this entire idea, okay? And Stallone, if, if you can go back this far, Stallone had already been having a bit of a career comeback in a sense, because he, you know, did Rocky Balboa, which came out in 2006, I want to say. And then uh, Rambo, the new Rambo movie that came out in 2008. So he was slowly kind of, you know, coming back into the conscious, the public consciousness again, and becoming relevant once again. And then thanks to the Expendables. Yeah, I mean, it was, he had come back and then some, I mean, it was, it was established by that point. Okay. Hey, Stallone is back. And if you think about it around the uh, early to mid two thousands, yeah, Stallone was, uh, he had a few movies that went direct to video as well. Okay. And so for him to be back on the big screen, that was, that was pretty, you know, that, that was pretty magical and pretty cool to see as well. But what's interesting. And again, I'm noticing this now. Okay. But what's interesting is, yeah, he has had success since The Expendables, but if you really notice it, he's really reliant on his franchise characters, Rocky and Rambo, to continue putting his face on the big screen and reminding people that he is still, you know, that he is still out there. Okay, you know, 2015, we saw the return of Rocky and uh, Creed, and then a couple years ago, thanks to Creed 2. But if you think about it, back in, uh, I want to say it was 2000. What was it? It was 2013 or so. He did the film Bullet to the Head. Okay. Mm-hmm. Which, and I don't know if you, if you saw that, if you remember it, but yeah, Bullet to the Head came out, uh, directed by Walter Hill. I loved it. I mean, I'll just say that right now, right now, I think Bullet to the Head is a fun movie, but it did terrible at the box office. It barely even cracked the top 10. Okay. And I think that right there, because we're going to be going to, uh, to, to Arnold Schwarzenegger here in a minute. He also kind of tried his hand at this. But I think the fact that a film like Bullet to the Head, which also was a love letter uh, that was hearkening back to these type of films from the 80s and the 90s, the fact that that film did as terrible as it did and it tanked at the box office, because that film, if you think about it, it didn't have all the other action guys you know, for, for Stallone to team up with. It was just solely a Stallone vehicle. And so for that film to tank like it did, I think that right there was a true testimony and indicator to the fact that, okay, let's be honest, these type of action movies were over. They were dead. And if you look at Stallone, okay, again, I don't want to mitigate his his talents and his uh, success on the big screen, okay? Because again, we, this past year we had uh, we had the return of Rambo and everything like that. But if you look at outside of those franchise characters, okay, he did sequels to Escape Plan, okay? Escape Plan two and three were released direct to video. They were awful, okay? He did the he did this he did this dopey looking film. I haven't even seen it called Backtrace. Okay. Mm -hmm. And Backtrace just looked, I've read the reviews. I've seen the trailer. I don't need to see it. It looks absolutely abysmal. And so you look at that and it's like, okay, if Stallone isn't commanding the box office, I I think it's an indicator that, that it's, it's, it's on its way out. If, If it hasn't already been over. Yeah, I mean, I think, you you know, you look at, you, you, just as we're talking about it timeline-wise, right, we're two, 2013, 2014, now we're getting full-on Marvel at this point. Um, the only franchises that are really managing to, to stick with Marvel at that point are, like, the Fast and the Furious ones, and then, I guess, you know, it's like Paranormal Activity or some of those horror ones, I think, um, you know, but really it was, 
you know, so, so at that point you can see, and you can see like the, there's the Taken sequels, right? That they were kind of using Liam Neeson at that time. I think uh, Taken was 08. So I guess it was into the early 2010s. You had these other sequels with Liam Neeson. They were kind of just trying to get as much blood out of that stone, I think, as they could. But um, I remember there was an action film with uh, Taraji P. Henderson um, that I can't remember the name of that one, but that was, I think they were trying to see if, okay, let's, if we can have a female in the, in the lead um, and maybe harken back to maybe some seventies black exploitation elements that might do the trick. But I think you're right at this stage of the game. Um, you, you can't, if, if, unless it's like a big Marvel movie. Um, and, and I mean, you look at this, the fast and the furious movies. I mean, they're essentially expendables movies, right? It's, you know, how many big but stars. So can we watered get? down. I mean, that's right. the thing. I mean, yeah. and, and everyone seems to bring that up as well. Everyone's, but that's the argument that I've heard. Sorry to interrupt you, but that's the yeah. argument that I always hear is that, oh, the action movie, as we know, it, is still very much alive. Look at the Fast and the Furious franchise. That always gets thrown out there, but it's like, th- those aren't the same. Like, you know what I mean? Like, those are. Right. I mean, I think the thing that they borrow from the Expendables, though, and I think that you could say the same thing about the Marvel movies. You could say it about the, the DC movies that are coming out now is that that big ensemble cast of, of action right. heroes. It, you know, it's like, because remember, you, you, you think about like the Marvel movies or the comic book movies before uh, Iron Man and actually kind of Iron Man's where they're starting to kind of get the, the sense of it. Like, oh, let's bring these these heroes together. It was always like the one hero. So it's always Spider-Man and then Spider-Man fights Dr. Octopus or he fights the, the lizard or whatever. But it's just it's just Spider-Man. It, it's only by himself. And, you know, when we read comics, I mean, at least I know for me, when I read comics growing up, no, they, they teamed up. They, they hung out together. You know, Spider-Man and Daredevil would go, you know, beat somebody up or the Punisher would show up or something like that. And so with the Expendables, we get that, right? I mean, when you think about it, right, I mean, what's the closest that we've ever had to uh, something like the Expendables where you've got like at least like two big names? I mean, like Tango and Cash or something? Like, you know, it's like, you know, you, you, you're lucky if you get two in a movie, let alone, I mean, Heat, right? Heat had three, right? I guess it had Val Kilmer, uh, De Niro, Pacino. But those aren't really action guys either, right? I mean, you know, and part of it is because of the egos, right? These guys, it's like they want to they want to lead the film. Um, but now what you see is like every movie, like, so like, you know, we're talking about Fast and the Furious, you're right. They're not action movies the way that Expendables is an action movie. They're not that kind of 80s, 90s action film that we we grew up with. These Fast and the Furious movies are something completely different, but they do like to use that idea. Um, and I've read that Vin Diesel's like a really big Dungeon and Dragons fan, so he likes the idea of like the quest and adding people to your quest as you go. So that's why like, you know, Jason Statham, Statham's a baddie in one of them, then he becomes a part of the team, um, you know, that, that kind of thing. But it is the same idea in the sense of like, we need a lot of star power if we're going to get people to the theater. Like, you can't, you can't just do the movie with just Vin Diesel anymore. Vin Diesel's not enough to carry a movie. You know, The Rock, I don't know what, what's happened with some of The Rock's solo action pictures. Um, but it feels like, no, he's got to do it with Jason Statham and Idris Elba. It's like, I think that was, that was maybe one of the turning points is that, you know, in, in all the Marvel movies, they always have like three or four people in them nowadays. Even I think Black Panther, I can't remember it had a, a few different, you know, but even that's like they kind of build a team of people. It's... I think that, that, that might have been one of the things that, that Hollywood looked at. Like, why just get one person? We need a whole bunch of stars in the movie. Well, I mean, even if you look at a guy like Arnold Schwarzenegger, I mean, Arnold Schwarzenegger, okay, and Sylvester <laughs> Stallone, these were the two biggest guys. I mean, if you think about it, these were the two biggest movie stars on the planet, and their name alone could open a movie. 
I mean, and, and that's that's wild to think that we lived in a time where you know just that name could open a movie. But th- th- there was a period where that happened. And so if you look at a guy like Arnold Schwarzenegger, okay, he did the film, uh, he did his little cameo in The Expendables One, and then he came back for you know longer parts, you can say, in uh, Expendables Two and Three. But if you look at it, once he once he left being governor of California and he tried his hand back at the movies, okay, his big theatrical comeback where he was in a lead role was the last stand and coincidentally that actually came out about a month actually before stallone uh had the film bullet to the head that came out okay and it was it it was it was just really wild to see and look i saw these movies opening night okay opening weekend okay i enjoyed last stand i did okay but if you look at it uh, it floundered horribly. Okay. Similar to bullet to the head. I think same thing with last stand. It barely cracked the top 10. It uh, yeah. was out of theaters within a couple weeks. And so what did Schwarzenegger do? Well, he had another film that came out about a year later. He did uh, sabotage. I don't know if you saw that one or not, but that one is a very just dark and nihilistic action movie. Nice. Same thing though. That one tanked at the box office. So what is, what is a guy like Schwarzenegger who was once at one time, the biggest movie star in the world, Okay, his movies aren't delivering at the box office anymore. What does he do? Well, he follows the route of a lot of his compatriots, and he goes direct to video. And so we saw Schwarzenegger try his hand at some drama. Okay, he did these little small direct to video films like Maggie and Aftermath. Okay, which are decent films. Okay, don't get me wrong. And it's it's there's something really kind of cool about seeing a guy like Arnold, you know, this big muscular Austrian dude, trying these small little dramas. Okay. However, and I've, we've said this on the show as, as well before. I'm sure, sh- I'm sure you can agree with it, but in the end, a direct to video film just does not have the same polish as something that is intended to go theatrical. And, you know, and, and once that's decided, I think from the, from the get go in a production that this film is independent, it's going to be going uh, on a, uh, what is it? They call it a premium video on demand route. Okay. All right. Even with Arnold headlining, it just doesn't have that same feel. And again, going back to what I said with bullet to the head. Okay. The fact that, okay. (laughs) Stallone is headlining a film like bullet to the head. Okay. Schwarzenegger is headlining a film like last stand, whatever they come out within a month of each other. And these films barely even crack the top 10. That right there is just a clear indicator and testimony that, you know what, these, these guys, I mean, they're still acting, God bless them, but audiences apparently nowadays want something different in terms of their, uh, their, their action heroes. And what's interesting about Schwarzenegger is at this point, he again kind of pulled a cue from uh, Stallone. He figured, well, let's go back to the franchise then. And so, and so what did we see Arnold do? But he went back to the Terminator. And he did yep. two Terminator films, and even those, even the two Terminator films, and we can we can pick apart the Terminator films; they have problems, but still, you know what I mean? It's it's just it's it's really kind of a shame. I mean, look, all things must pass, all things grow. I get that, but it's 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 really fascinating and it's really interesting to see that um, you know these guys. I mean, the, they're they're old; they're getting old, and these films are uh, they're they're on their way out if they're not already. Yeah, and I mean, yeah, you know, you mentioned about the franchise part of it because that seems to be the big thing, and I think that was even a big thing before, um, you know, when the Expendables, you know, before the Expendables came out, that 
Hollywood was looking for franchises. I mean, it's like, you know, Robert Downey Jr. is playing Sherlock Holmes because they wanted to create a Sherlock Holmes franchise. It's like, you know, they reboot uh, Charlie's Angels with a new cast because they want to create a Charlie's Angels franchise. And it's like, you know, Disney seems to have the big ones locked up, right? They've got Star Wars, they've got uh, their their own Disney movies, and they've got Marvel and they've got Pixar, right? So it's like they've got the biggest ones, and and then you know you know Universal, I guess, or, or um, Warner has um, uh, DC, um, but you know DC, it's like it's like that's just one compared to four or five, you know. And um, I think everyone was looking for their franchises, and so when when you know Schwarzenegger is looking for something, they're like, yeah, let's get if we can make you know if we can get terminator off the ground that's a franchise for you know we can maybe you know pull in you know eight eight hundred million you know in the box office worldwide or you know get something that that grosses in the top 10 for the year that's like the, everybody's trying to get that in because I, I think one of the things that's interesting that we you know going back to fast and the furious i think what's unique about fast and the furious is that it is the kind of the outlier of a franchise right it's not based on some really established concept that the other ones are yet it still kind of makes that kind of money and i think people think like okay fast and the furious can do it we can do it with terminator um we can do it with rambo um you know we can do it with those ones and i think you're right that it's just it's you know i think like you said we can pick apart those terminator ones and sometimes that's what it is too Um, but i think also i think it's like man if you can't get the buzz behind it um and and you know there are other factors we could talk about too like the fact that disney because they have these big franchises, they completely overrun theaters. And so with the way theaters work, I mean, when we were growing up, you know, something like Batman in 1989 or whatever, 88 or whenever that came out, that had like two theaters, I think it had, you know, in, in a movie theater. Nowadays, that Batman would take up four theaters or, you know, Disney mm-hmm. would try to get it. So that Marvel movie and the, Disney would kind of, they can kind of take over an entire theater with all of their franchises at once if they want to. And so then, you know, that Terminator movie only gets one or two screens at a, at a theater. Well, now it's only getting one or two screens. People have already spent all of this money to go see the Marvel movie. You know, you're going to shell out another 50 bucks to go see another, the- you know, because, you know, the theater is so, so expensive nowadays. So it's really hard in this current ecosystem to carve out a, a theatrical uh, uh, career nowadays uh, because of the way, you know, com- like Disney has completely sort of taken it over. Um, and and I think that's one of the things, too, I think we're seeing is that so if you don't have kind of like a big tent approach i mean you know you you, like you talk about schwarzenegger was one of the biggest names in in the 80s you know Stallone was one of the biggest names in the 80s but they weren't really like big tent kind of films right they were kind of like guys go out and watch this thing and get a kick out of it and love it and then like women might you know i'm not trying to cast you know because there were plenty of women that went to see Stallone films too but there was an idea that like you know you had your movies for men movies for women movies for kids and they all could grow and, and breathe in this ecosystem you could have comedies and dramas and actions and 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 all of them could breathe in the ecosystem and all of them could make money um and and i think you you get take 10 years away from stallone and schwarzenegger they come back into this new ecosystem that is just there's not enough air for them and and now we, we saw the unfortunate reality that it's, it's direct to video and like you said direct to video because it doesn't pull in that kind of money um you know we when, when you've had um, uh, Ben Sachs on as a producer, I, I think one of my favorite things that he talked about in sort of the direct-to-video world is like the studio comes to him and says, "How much can you make this movie for?" I can make it for five million. Great, make it for three million. You know, it's like that's that's kind of what, what they're living with there. And I, for someone like Stallone or Schwarzenegger to have to live in that kind of ecosystem, I can imagine is was probably very disheartening. Right. 
Right. Well, I mean, look, we, we keep mentioning the Fast and the Furious, okay? And so th- that's, an e- that's an excellent segue because if you look at a guy like Jason Statham, okay? Yeah. So when The Expendables came out, Jason Statham was, I mean, I would say he was like the leading action guy, okay? Like he was the guy who was still getting, you know, those, those action-type roles that the guys like Stallone and Schwarzenegger and Dolph were getting back in the 80s and 90s, okay? That was all in the, uh, in the shoes of Jason Statham. So it only made, it only made sense, okay, that Sylvester Stallone was going to cast Jason Statham for this movie. And can we say, okay, Jason Statham, he had an amazing run doing action movies. Okay, if you take a look at his uh, at his run, I would say it was about from about two thousand two, two thousand three, to about two thousand twelve. He was doing nothing but straight up action movies, and he had some. I mean, let's face it, he had some awesome ones. Okay, some went direct to video, but I'd say a good majority did go theatrical. I mean, if you take a look at the mechanic. Okay, the mechanic is a really cool one. Safe is a really cool one. Um, the crank movies are. <laughs> completely trashy and ridiculous but you know you love them as well but if you if you think about it i think jason statham both him and you can also say his agent as well they also saw the writing on the wall here okay and they also saw that look these films were drying up and maybe a lot of them weren't coming his way anymore and so Thankfully, he found the uh, he, he maybe not an easy route, but he found success going the franchise route, we can say. And so he latched on to Fast and the Furious franchise. And I think, you know, he did this to kind of uh, uh, continue being relevant and, you know, continue having some career longevity. And then he also we also saw him starting to do some more commercial stuff. OK, so he did the film The Meg, which is, you know, that ridiculous giant shark movie. <laughs> okay, you know <laughs> he did that. I guess he has another uh, another film uh, that is uh, currently in post right now called. I, you know, actually, I don't even know what it's called, but it's um, directed by Guy Ritchie. So I guess he's kind of going back to his roots. But for the most part, I think, like I said, Statham saw the writing on the wall, and I think that explains his most recent career decisions as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Because I mean, you know, that's the interesting thing, right? He he comes in into uh, Fast and the Furious Seven, and um. I remember he tweeted it like because when, when you know, that was like the announcement. He was like, you know, you know, something like Toretto, let's go, or something like that. And I think it was, you know, it's one of those things too where I think when you watch those Fast and the Furious movies, where it's like I think they do something with movies that I think you know, we, we we didn't see in the eighties, right? Where it's like, okay, because you know, because they're, they're looking to have these huge franchises that go on forever, so it's like. You know, we would watch a movie in the '80s, and you'd have a bad guy. You, you know, you've got you know whoever Vernon Wells in uh in in Commando, or um well, I can't think of his name, the, the bad guy in Cobra, um that that actor, big big beefy. Oh, Brian actor. Thompson. Brian Johnson, Thompson, right? Chow Khan. You know, yeah. they're they they they're in the movie. They're the bad guy. They get killed, right? You know, Hans Gruber gets killed at the end. But with these franchises, it's like. No, no, no. We've got Jason Statham in this movie, and he's the bad guy, but we need him for the next ones, right? Because everybody right. likes him. You know, it's like The Rock is the bad guy, but but we need him because everybody likes The Rock. And then, you know, I think what happened for for Vin Diesel, right, is that they, they kind of took the movies, the franchise over from him. And that's why I think they had to split off the Hobbs and Shaw movie because I think the two of them were like, we're going to, we want to do something different with this from for, versus what Vin Diesel wanted to do with it. And it's like, yeah, too many big names in the room, I think. But, 
you know, it's still different from what we we were used to, right? Where it's like, no, if, if we've got three Rambo movies, they're going to have different baddies in them. Or if we bring back a baddie, it's not because he's a good guy now and he's hanging out with, with Rambo. They brought him back and he's usually got like kind of a scar on his face and he, you know, it's like he survived some kind of, you know, some exploding helicopter debacle and, and somehow he came back to, to fight Stallone again. It's it's a very different thing, I think. And, and who knows, maybe there's something about it too. Like maybe it, it appeals to younger viewers, um, where you know for people our age we just want to see the baddie get vanquished we don't want to you know see him get turned into a good guy in the next movie we don't really care about that i i don't know what that is but with statham you're right statham like figured it out like he's like i'm gonna steal the show in fast and the furious 7 they 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 can't not bring me back for fast and the furious 8 i'm gonna be so good in fast and the furious 7 um and you know that's it's like a very different thing i think from what we're used to well, I mean, speaking of bad guys, I mean, l- let's look at uh, Steve Austin. I don't know. I don't know if we need to refer to him as Steve Austin or Stone Cold Steve Austin. I think Stone Cold is that's obviously trademarked by the WWE. But uh, yeah, Steve Austin, he had a short run. I mean, I think thanks to the Expendables, he prospered a little bit. It was a short period, but he did prosper in the world of direct-to-video, okay, because unfortunately um unless he is i mean it's really unfortunate because actually i like i like steve austin i i think he's you know he, he only really has one mode i guess the <laughs> that he plays but i mean I, I i think he's great when he's on screen uh before he did um expendables where he shows up as uh as eric roberts right hand man um he did the condemned which um i actually i actually enjoy i think that's a fun movie um Oddly enough, that one actually went theatrical. But after The Expendables, he had a very short-lived career as a uh, leading action guy. And again, all of these films went direct-to-video. It's interesting because thanks to The Expendables, it seems like he developed a partnership with a producer by the name of uh, Julius Nasso. Okay, And so most of the films that uh, we saw uh, Steve Austin do following the Expendables were produced by, uh, by NASA. So you have the film, uh, damage hunt to kill the stranger. Um, he also did another film called uh, maximum conviction. Interestingly, mm-hmm. where he's, uh, partnered with Steven Seagal, only he and Steven Seagal really don't share any scenes together, but, but even that, you know, I mean, I mean, and that, that's a, you know, look, I don't, I don't want to mitigate that at all. I mean, because that, that's a pretty good run for a guy like Steve Austin. However, though, Again, writing on the wall that didn't last very long. And last I checked, I think uh, I think Steve Austin is now doing uh, like reality TV, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So so one of the last ones he did was a movie called Chain of Command, which um, okay. I don't know because there's a lot of Chain of Commands out there. But I watched this movie because um, I it's got also got Michael Jai White in it. And when you watch it, you realize something went horribly wrong. With, with the making of it. I don't know what it was, but it was directed by a person who made set. I think the movie is called seven. Um, I'm trying to think what it was called. Uh, the director's name was Kevin Carraway. He also wrote it, but he did um, a movie called seven below seven below that had Val Kilmer and Bing Rames in it. And so I think and, and that movie was pretty competently made seven below. And I think, you know, whatever happened, they were, they were going to make this movie and whether the funding got pulled on it or, or something went wrong, but it looks like a very low budget indie film. Um, there's, there's scenes that you're, you're watching where you're seeing people fall into to, to falling off buildings and landing on padded, you know, things, or you're seeing like, you know, um, you know, one scene where somebody is like 
tied to a chair or something. The next thing they're not. And, but then they are again, <laughs> the next, you know, like those kinds of things that just tells you that something went wrong, that it wasn't like, you know, they they had to use footage they didn't want to use kind of thing. And, and I, that was the last one that Stone called uh, that, that Steve Austin did. Um, and it was, he was actually pretty good in it. It's just, you know, the movie itself just didn't work. And I don't think he's done anything since then. I don't know, but I think that was one that was probably not, it, it, it hurt both his and I think for, for Michael J. White, I think it hurt him as well. It was, it just didn't come out like they wanted it to. Um, I mean, one of the things I noticed with Stone, with, with Steve Austin's career. Know, is it's, that it's so hard. You want to call him stone cold. <laughs> I know. Well, cause the thing is like, that Stone Cold character was so electric. I mean, because that one, when you think about like Game Changers, I mean, you know, when we were growing up with wrestling, you had good guys and you had bad guys, and there was no in between. But here comes Steve Austin as the bad guy, like beating up Brett the Hitman Hart, and people were cheering for it. They loved it. Mm-hmm. And suddenly it was like, oh, you can actually do this. You can like drink beer and throw the cans at, at, at guys and still be likable. And when you when when I watch his movies, his DTV movies, I don't see enough of that Stone Cold character. It's almost like um, he doesn't have as much. Uh, there's not that as much of that natural charisma that that I love with the wrestling. His characters tend to be like these dark brooding types of guys, and I think that was kind of a missed opportunity with him. I, I feel like that you know you could have had like a Dolph ish kind of because I mean, you think of Dolph's charisma when he, when he plays his parts that like it, 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 there's something fun about him doing movies that. You know, I think maybe Stone Cold, maybe he didn't want to be Stone Cold anymore. Maybe he was like, I don't want to be Stone Cold. I want to be something else in the movies, which is fine. But when you've got natural charisma like that, I always feel like you got to use it. And I do feel like in the Expendables film, there was a little bit more of that, that he, you know, I mean, Eric Roberts was the main baddie. So he was kind of, he was playing that hatchet man role that generally doesn't have a lot of personality. Um, But it was, I mean, it was, it was definitely, if I was going to pick someone to play that role, he would have been the one to do it. So I definitely appreciated that. Well, and okay, let's, let's, let's look at uh, the man of the hour here. Okay. Dolph Lundgren. All right. <laughs> Again, uh, he, in my opinion, and obviously maybe I'm a little biased, but I would say out of all of these guys, okay, Dolph has had post expendables, the most interesting and fascinating trajectory in terms of his films that followed, I, you know, I've, I've, I've seen it on various message boards. I will say the expendables for Dolph was a blessing in a, in so many ways, but I will also say it was a little bit of a curse. And I feel in some ways it almost kind of overexposed him a bit too much. So here's a, here's a statistic. Okay. That I, that I pulled up today that I don't know about you, Matt, but I found this fascinating. If you look at Dolph, okay. From 1985, to 2010 okay so we're basically looking at rocky four to the expendables okay dolph did approximately 39 different projects okay so 39 different films of various capacities whether they're supporting roles or you know leading roles however you want to refer to it okay but he was in about 39 projects okay in those 25 years from 1985 to 2010 okay now if you look at 2010 to today, to the present, okay? So we're looking at Expendables to now. Dolph has done 40 different projects, 40, all right? So in 25 years, he did the same amount of films that he did that he has done within the past 10 years, okay? And so like I said, it's a bit of a, on one hand, I mean, look at, I mean, Expendables opened a ton of doors for the guy. But on the other hand, I think, again, that is another testament okay to the the ever-changing genre okay because nowadays 
these films, okay, these independent direct-to-video films, they simply do not have the budgets that they used to. They do not have the shooting time that they used to. And so as a result, you have a guy like Dolph who is, I mean, I think, I don't want to say he's working for paychecks here, but he's also essentially trying to strike while the iron's hot and make a living. Okay. So if you look at the films that he was doing from the nineties to the early two thousands, okay. He was roughly working on about maybe one to two films a year. And those, those films that he was doing around that period, we can say uh, the peacekeeper and sweepers. Okay. Those particular films, those had fairly hefty budgets for being a direct to video film. Okay. Those had budgets for between 10 to 12 million nowadays. Okay. You look at a lot of films he's been doing within the past six years or whatever. We're talking budgets of, barely 3 million. I mean, there is just not much of a market there anymore for these particular films. And so I don't know if you've noticed any of that or picked up on on that particular, that output. I mean, that's an impressive output. I mean, 40 40 films and and TV shows and everything that he has done over the course of 11 years. But, But man, if you look at them, Okay, the quality of these projects compared to what he had been doing in 25 years from 85 to 2010, it's a stark difference, man. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you there. I mean, there's there's some interesting things that come up, right? Because it's, I think the world almost rediscovers Dolph, right? Like we had been, we knew Dolph. I mean, I, mean, I think part of a big reason why we went to the Expendables was because it had Dolph. You know, we were Dolph fans before the movie came out, but there were a lot of people who didn't really know Dolph, right? There were a lot of people that had kind of forgotten about him. They knew you know, Master of the Universe, they knew um, Ivan Drago, um, you know, I Must Break You and all of that stuff. They knew that kind of thing, but they had kind of like, oh, you know, who is this, you know? And it's like, once The Expendables comes out, I mean, he's doing commercials a lot at that point. Um, you know, I mean, you know, like, I think there was like insurance companies and like lawn, like there was a lawnmower company that was using, I mean, everybody wanted him. He was on TV shows all over the place. I mean, he was doing Arrow, uh, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, um, you know, just tons of stuff and i think you're right about the movies i think with the movies it's like i mean you know he he was doing a lot of small parts in things but you're right like you can kind of see like you know you know i think in 2016 i'm looking at it here i see five movies that he did now he's one of them was an uncredited part in uh hail caesar the uh uh, coen brothers film so it's interesting how he's getting like you know, bit parts and, and or like, you know, uncredited parts and, you know, Coen brothers, you know, Oscar winning directors that are like, you know, big deals. Um, at the same time, he's doing another kindergarten cop film. You know, he's doing, uh, uh, you know, a Russian film that I have now come close to seeing Mel Cheesnick. I, I don't know how you, even, uh, I, I've seen it listed there, but I don't know how you even find that. Um, yeah, you're right. He's kind of working paycheck to paycheck, but at the same time, he's getting these roles, you know, he, you know, Oh, we're going to use him in Aquaman. Um, you know, so it's almost like, full circle right where he was in punisher that was like left on the shelf and didn't really get it it, it, it's due now he gets to be in a big comic book movie in in aquaman and have a just a sizable part in that uh and so yeah it's it's like you said I, i agree with you it's like on the one hand it's so great to see him in so many things it's great to see him in like a you know was it hbo film um toward a pharmacy that where he's like right he's playing like like it's like i think john cena is playing him as the young character in the 70s in the and and then he's playing the older version of that character um but you know i mean when you know i, I mean he's doing these the all kinds of different stuff and i it, it's you're right it's interesting it's like he's overexposed to some extent because you're seeing a lot of movies here that that just didn't work for for whatever reason and then you're seeing 
yeah, you, you don't see like those, there's no like showdown of little Tokyos in here. There's nothing that you can look at and say like, man, this one, I mean, I don't know if I have any of these movies, these new ones in my like top 20 Dolph films. No. Um, you know, yeah, I think that's a good point. I never really consider, I think Altitude is the one that I had kind of like the highest because I really like the way he played in that film. And I also like the way that they used um, uh, Denise Richard as, as the hero. And he kind of took a back seat as the bad guy to let her be the hero and lead the film. But yet he was still Dolph. Um, yeah. There was that one I liked. And, and then, um, you know, Don't Kill It and Welcome to Willits, I think. I, Welcome to Willits, he had such a small part in that one, too, because he was just like kind of like a TV personality. But, yeah, I, you're, you're right. I don't see anything that's like, you know, if I'm ranking my, you know, whatever, how many movies Dolph is on, 60, 70, whatever it is, you know, none of these are in the top 20. I agree with you there. Well, I mean, and look, let's face it. I mean, thanks to the Expendables, Dolph finally got the mainstream attention and heat uh, yeah. once again. I mean, you know, considering he had, you know, been uh, relegated to, you know, those that direct-to-video era, era, okay, or area, however you want to refer to it, it was really cool to see him finally, uh, you know, getting all this attention again. And so on one hand, look, I get it, okay? He's striking while the iron is hot. Okay, and he is signing up for all of these various projects that are coming his way. I mean, I remember it was wild, actually, but I remember after Expendables. Okay, once that uh, I mean, it it had been out of theaters, but he was in the public consciousness. It was announced that he had signed up for three different projects. Okay, he had one in the chamber, the package and stash house. Okay, I mean, it was pretty much a three. I don't even know if it was a three picture deals. I don't think they were all done by the producers. But I mean, it was announced at at one specific time that he, you know, had latched on to three different projects. So look, I get it. Okay, he's striking while the iron is hot. Okay, and so he's, you know, look, he's, his name is out there. He's going to, you know, continue doing his best at, uh, at, you know, selling himself. There was also some other stuff that was going on that that's probably important to to, to mention. Dolph had uh, moved back to Los Angeles. He had gotten divorced. And yeah. so he had moved back to Los Angeles. And, okay, let's face it, Los Angeles, that's the epicenter for right. a lot of these productions. And so I think that kind of factored in as well, the fact that, okay, now that he's in Los Angeles – well, it makes it easier for him to accept some of these projects and show up on set for, you know, anywhere from five days to, you know, a week, as opposed to prior to the Expendables, he was living in Europe, like I said. And, you know, because he was living in Europe, he was only able to make one, maybe two direct-to-video films a year. So I think that kind of uh, factors in. But again, going back to what I said earlier, you know, you look at those films, okay, from the, from the, I'd say from the entire 90s period, okay, e- even though, even something like Bridge of Dragons, for example, which is completely ridiculous, okay, I don't know if you're familiar <laughs> with that, that one, or if you've seen it, um, completely ridiculous, but you look at something like that, okay, you know, it, it has a little more money going for, going, you know, towards it, you can see, I mean, that's on the screen, and look, I mean, <laughs> and I imagine you're seeing this uh, as well, looking at a lot of the films. I and mean, you mentioned it already, talking about Chain of Command. Okay, you look at these films nowadays. These budgets are so small to almost non-existent. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if most of the budget that is there is going toward the star's salaries. Okay, and so as a result, it, these productions, like for example, Shark Lake and Blood of Redemption, these are some of the gems that Dolph has done within the past, you know, few years. Um, these productions they can only afford guys like Dolph for only a few days. 
So you have the director, okay, who's already, you know, making the film with scraps as is, okay? He's trying to wrangle all of these various obstacles, okay? And then he has a lead that they can only afford for three, four days. Well, then what do you do? How are you supposed to film a 95-minute movie when your lead is only going to be on set for a few days, you know? Yeah, I mean, just look at 2019 because you can really get a, so three different uh, approaches to handling only, only having Dolph for a few days, right? You've got Hard Night Falling, where uh, essentially we lose Dolph for like you know ha- you know 20 minute half hour stretches in the middle of the film. It's like it's like Die Hard in a Castle, but he's the you know the, the, it's like if you had Die Hard with John McClane just missing for huge exactly of time. Um, yeah. Acceleration. He spends most of the time just sitting behind a um wall of tvs you know while um you know uh, uh oh why can't i think of her name natalie um natalie burn uh, natalie burn um is is doing all the work um which i don't think is the worst thing in the world but you know i mm-hmm. think again you know that that's how you mitigate the dull situation there and then then the tracker um you know he's he's kind of there's this, this whole like intrigue plot going on with this this italian cop who's trying to unravel it while dolph is going to get his revenge so again that's how you kind of can mitigate the the lack of dolph in the movie so there's these creative ways that some of these directors do it where it's i mean you notice like with a bruce willis film it's just like you know there he is in one location he's only in that one location the whole time uh he doesn't move um he doesn't you know generally doesn't even change uh you know outfits he's he's in you know the same suit for the whole time yeah it's it's interesting i think that you know like you said you, you've only got doll for a couple of days so what do you do you figure out a way to make him a part of the film without using a lot of footage there and and, and you notice with all three of those movies it's like you feel like there's something missing when he's not in, on the scene. Um, and, and granted, I love Natalie Byrne. I think she, she's really great. But there's something about when Dolph leaves the room in, in, a, in a film that, that, that all the air tends to come out of it. If you know mm-hmm. he's in the movie, it's like when he's not there. And so I think I, I kind of see what, you know, for me, it's, I guess it's a big part of why I don't, you know, place any of these in, in very, like, high on my Dolph list because – you, you, you know, as a Dolph fan, you can really feel that. You're just like, I'm here to watch Dolph, and it's like all I'm doing is waiting 20-minute periods to see Dolph again. And, and yeah. um, you know, I think you're right. I think, you know, when, when in the 90s, those movies were made in Europe, and now they're made in L.A. because they're made in two days really quickly, really cheaply. Um, so you don't need to be in Europe to make them if you're doing it like that. Um, it's, yeah, it's it's kind of a cynical way to look at it. And, you know, I think... I can kind of see what you mean. I think I was coming into this, this conversation being like, yeah, Dolph just blows up after the expendables. And it's like, it's huge, you know, like, like, like um, Mitch Lovell had said on, on, on my show before it's a Dolph but I get what you're saying here about, there is a little bit of an overexposure here that there's a, there's, there's a, another side to this. There's a, a yin mm-hmm. to this yang here. That's not as, as good. Well, and of course I don't want to, I don't want to throw out or discredit um, films like Aquaman or Creed two. Because, I mean, those are huge, big budget films that went theatrical. And I also don't want to discredit, I mean, I would say the best film that, uh, that, that Dolph has done post-Expendables that went the kind of direct-to-video route is Skin Trade. Okay, Skin Trade, I would yeah. say, is, you know, that one goes head and shoulders above uh, all these other films. And, you know, my, my buddy Chris Prentice, you know, he... He's been on uh, quite a few of my episodes, but he said something that, that I think is so apt and so fitting about Skin Trade. If you look at the movie Skin Trade, okay, that is a film that, uh, and I, I probably should have pulled up the the exact budget that was uh, used oh, for. I, or, right here. I, I might be able to. I've got IMD. I always have IMDb up when I do these okay. conversations. So let me see if I can pull the budget here. 
Uh, well, I do a- know. I do know that Skin Trade, yeah. That one, that was a project that Dolph was heavily invested in. Okay. Yeah. He actually, he spent uh, quite a bit more time, you know, on set. And so you look at a film like that and it's like my buddy Chris said, I mean, you look at a film like Skin Trade and that looks like a real movie. I mean, yeah. you know, c- compared to all the other stuff, compared to say Altitude or Acceleration or Shark Lake or any of those, you look at Skin Trade and it's like, man, like this looks like an actual movie. This looks like something that could go theatrical as opposed to acceleration or altitude i mean those films to me just look like cheap tv movies i mean the digital look doesn't do them any favors and they just they just look kind of cheap and when you hear that uh, dolph was on set for maybe about a week it's like yeah yeah it 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 shows okay i can tell you know yeah for sure so 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 budget on this was nine million so that's okay um that that gives you a sense and um Mm -hmm. you know it 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 did almost six hundred thousand worldwide gross just for you know box office which you know for for 2014 for a movie like this that's that's not horrible um you know obviously you'd like to try to make your budget back but i guess it's you know they're expecting to make it back but i think that's kind of the big thing right i think when um when you had ben Sachs on your show he was talking about how these movies generally don't make their budget back um, that you know these direct-to-video movies nowadays, they often don't make the. Um, I think I think even in the '90s and the 2000s, remember, we, you know, we would buy these movies. We'd buy them. You know, sometimes you buy them new for twenty dollars, and there isn't that market anymore. Now it's well, let's wait till it's on Prime and rent it for three dollars. And it, and that's if I want to spend the three dollars. I mean, Acceleration. It didn't take long for that one to be streamed for free on, yeah. on Prime. Um, you yeah. know, so these movies don't make their budget back anymore because you know we can just you know wait to stream them somewhere and 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 with so many things available to stream, you really got to have something that is just really really spectacular. Um, and I think for me, I mean, for me, a new Dolph movie a lot of times is. Re- I mean, actually, when I think about it, um, Acceleration I was able to get through Hoopla, um, but I did pay. I think I did pay to get both Hard Night Falling and Tracker. Or um, no, Tracker was available on another streaming service that we were getting for free with our cable company that week. So you, you know, it's yeah, that no, nobody's paying for these anymore, and so you, you know, you can't afford to spend nine million dollars on a movie like this if it's barely going to make it back on you know Amazon Prime streams. Yeah. Well, this is going to be a uh, real uh, true turning point in the podcast, I will say, because I mean, look, <laughs> I said it. There are still so many films to cover post expendables um but i'll be honest many of them are of a uh, kind of a middling quality i will say you know a buddy recommended to me maybe doing some uh, combo episodes because uh a, a full-on discussion looking at uh, a film like shark lake or blood of redemption would be, <laughs> would be kind of a difficult or impossible to do it might even be difficult to uh, find guests for those so matt i'll probably be hitting you up uh I'll be I'll be hitting you up uh, quite a bit for a lot of these, but um, look, hey, I, I've had a ton of fun uh, reminiscing about this film with you and kind of looking at the uh, the market and uh, its its evolution, if you will. Before I let you go, is there uh, anything that you want to give a shout out to or plug? Um, yeah, so so um, yeah, um, dtvconnoisseur.blogspot.com. That's the site, and you will probably find links for everything there. Um, also, my novel Chad and Accounting is uh, available on Amazon. Um, probably better to look up Chad and Accounting. Then look up uh, my name, Matt Porter, because it's really hard to remember how to spell my last name. So if you look up uh, Chad and you can get it on paperback or, or Kindle. But yeah, pretty much everything. Um, if you go to dtvconnoisseur.blogspot.com, that has links to all, all, um, you know, all my social media and everything like that. Right on, right on. Well, I had a ton of fun with you uh, last time I was on your show. You uh, graciously had me on, and we talked about the Enigma. 
that was Mr. Uh, Steven Seagal. That was that was a ton of fun to to chat with you. So thank you again for for that opportunity. I actually uh, directed a buddy to uh, to that episode a few weeks ago, and he was like, "Man, you guys uh, really really give it to Seagal, but you don't say anything that's not true." Yeah, you had I think you had one of the best analogies ever. Um, on uh, you know that I in describing when you described that film and you said that it's like somebody's catering a meal for a party. And they've got everything ready to go, but then they're told at the last minute that like everything has to have pineapple in it. And that kind of described that movie, um, you know, against the dark. That's like a, a vampire movie that you just sort of thrust Seagal into it. He's the pineapple. Yeah, there's no that's, reason uh, thrust into everything. Yeah, the, and if you look at a lot of the films that Seagal has done, actually within the past uh, ten years, there's no reason for Seagal to be in a lot of those movies because what he does, kind of like what we talked about earlier, he he lets like a younger guy, some kind of no name, do all the action while he just sits the entire entire movie and then yet he gets top billing it's like what is this yes he gets top billing he gets the girl i mean interesting you know we were talking about the this expendables i mean Seagal was like uh he was definitely conspicuously absent from any of those um i think you know he kind of probably didn't get along with certain people in that in that 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 group there but he for for the big names that were in all those movies he was he was uh not in yeah yeah well, Matt, this has been a ton of fun. Uh, like I said, I, I, I love chatting with you, and I hope to have you back on again sometime soon. So, uh, if there are of any of these forty projects that uh, that Dolph has done post Expendables, any of these strike your fancy, please uh, please hit me up, and we'll, uh, we'll we'll pencil something in. Okay? Yeah, you, you know me. You had me on for Final Inquiry. Anytime it's Dolph, I'm I'm happy to talk about it. Doesn't matter what it is. Right on. Right on. Cool. Well, hey, uh, to everyone out there who is listening, please feel free to rate and review the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you go to subscribe. We always appreciate the reviews, and we'll see you all next time on I Must Break This Podcast. (laughs) 